0: The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. And you found yourself today at our series called Pure Sex. Now, of all the talks that I've ever given, all the kids going out with Trevor, have a good time, all the talks that I've ever given, this is one that I'm going to ask you to stick with me for the whole series. And so, uh, sorry, you're stuck now. You have to come back next week and the next week and the next week. I'm going to take this for about four or five weeks. And this is the reason why. This is a very intense topic and this is a complex topic and there i'm not a good enough speaker to lay out the whole thing in 30 minutes and cover every single point that there is it's just not going to happen and so it's going to take me a number of weeks to really lay out for you uh, as many of the different angles that i can think of And so if you just, you know, I don't know what your schedule is. If you just plan on being here for the whole remainder of this series, you get the the main picture of what we're talking about. And of all the series that we've done, this one has with it more resources, more interaction. We want to make this so that it's really a, a whole shotgun approach. Many different opportunities for you to interact with us and the church as we go throughout this series. And so I'll be explaining some of that as we go along uh, this morning. The title today is What the Bible Really Says About Sex. This past week in California, Proposition 8 was, uh, Proposition 8 is a ban on gay marriage, was overturned by the courts. On Wednesday, in our state, in Washington, we became the seventh state in the United States to approve gay marriage and legalize gay marriage in Washington. Also this past week, Mimi Alford uh, published a book detailing her affair with President John Kennedy. And she went on TV and gave interviews about her story, talked about how she was overpowered by the then handsome and powerful President of the United States who expertly maneuvered her into bed She was 19 years old and a virgin. She thought about screaming out for help. But then what? She thought to herself, I have no access to power. I would lose the feelings that I have of being special in front of the president. There might be agonizing embarrassment. And she would also lose her internship. And so she says, and I quote, I made the devil's bargain and slept with the president. Yesterday, the Cox family buried two of their grandchildren. Those two little boys were murdered by their father. And at the very heart of this case, this Powell case, is a tragic and sordid tale of sexual crimes. And one could only wonder that if at some point in the past history, somebody in the Powell family found some help, those two little boys would be alive today. Of course, I'm simplifying it. Obviously, there was more going on in the Powell family than dysfunctional sex. And on a more uplifting note, Amanda mentioned it as well, this week is Valentine's Day. We live in a sexually charged society. We have superstar athletes that engage in extraordinary episodes of sexual impulse. Tiger Woods, who will be forever remembered as one having incredible athletic talent. And also unbelievable marital unfaithfulness. In fact, we even have a name for it now. We call it a serial adulterer. We live in a tell-all world. People have sex on camera just to become famous. People star in reality TV shows and flaunt and flirt and portray sex as nothing more than a good thrill. We become a sex-addicted society. Maybe we always have been. And maybe it's just because of media and technology that it's more public than ever before. But there's no doubt about it, sex is very powerful in our community. It has become a part of almost everything. It's a force for great good and great evil. Because of the emotional intensity of this subject, I think we need to lay out some specific designs, some specific boundaries. First of all, I will be teaching on what the Bible has to say about sex. To highlight the dangers of going outside of the biblical parameters set by God. To offer practical support for those who desire to keep themselves pure before God. And to offer a roadmap of hope for those who find themselves outside of God's best. Here are some guidelines that I've set for the next few weeks. First of all, I'm not God, if you noticed. And I didn't write the Bible. But I take this responsibility very seriously. I'm gonna offer my best presentation on this subject but make no apology for what the Bible actually says. I understand very deeply that the church, over thousands of years, has hurt and wounded millions of people. And I myself have been deeply wounded by the church. Our problem is that God has entrusted leadership of the church to people. Maybe if he had given the responsibility to angels, things would be different. This series will not be a beat down. I'm going to offer the truth clothed in the kindness of grace. There are two basic sides to this that I see. One are those who advocate what the Bible says and those who do not. And anyone who looks into this issue at all will find an incredible amount of hate on both sides of that issue. There's so much passion on this issue, it's a wonder that the two sides will ever be able to agree, much less coexist in the same society. This past week I was reading blogs and Facebook posts and internet posts and watching stories on TV about Washington State becoming the seventh state to legalize gay marriage. And what you could see was this incredible hatred by the gay community towards the church. An anger, a burning anger and hatred towards God. The gay community, I believe, has developed this extreme hatred towards the church due to the pathetic way in which the church has gone about pushing this issue. Standing on the corner condemning people who do not believe in the Bible is not what Jesus did. And it just makes people hate God. I think it's created the perception that God hates anyone who doesn't follow His ways and that Christians are just hate-filled people. So this series is not going to be about how to change the culture morally or politically. And I'm not saying that that's not an important endeavor. I'm just saying it's not going to be a part of this series. The only person who knows everything is God. And he's not telling. There are still some mysteries surrounding sex. Some things we don't know and we don't understand. Scientists, theologians, politicians, poets, philosophers, activists have all weighed in on the subject, and still we are not entirely sure how everything is affected. So my focus will be more on the why than on the what and the how. Why does God even have rules about sex? What's the big deal? Why does he care what people do in the secret of their bedroom? Sex is fun. Why does he have to make rules that seem to ruin people's lives and make everything difficult? And there are two core beliefs that will be driving me as we, I lead us through this series. First of all, The Bible was written by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak for God. The whole Bible. And you will hear people weigh in on this subject maybe from a Jewish perspective who only refer to the Bible as the Torah, not including the New Testament. Or all kinds of groups that are saying they're coming from a biblical point of view. But in 1 Timothy, we see that the Bible says of itself what its specific purpose is. And number two, I believe that the Bible outlines how God, God's will is for Christians and how they should live their lives. To deny the Bible's authority is to deny that Jesus is the Savior. Did you hear me? To deny that the Bible has an authority over your life as a Christian is to deny that Jesus is the Savior because He affirmed the Scriptures. Now, the Bible is ancient. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and so it warrants a translation. We're reading in English. And in some parts of it, it warrants an interpretation. Some parts of the Bible are completely obvious. They don't need any type of interpretation. An example of that would be in the book of Acts. It talks about Paul, who's riding along on the road to Damascus. Now, that doesn't require any interpretation at all. Damascus was a literal road. We know that by history, and he was on it. It is not a metaphor for all the roads that people take in life. It is just a road, and He is just a guy on it. Now, there are other parts of the Bible that do require an interpretation, and I like to compare it to a mother who understands the cry of her baby. That baby can cry, and that mother knows that child, is intimate with that child, and knows that's a hungry cry. I'm hungry, or I need to be patted, I need to burp. (laughs) I have, I've got gas pain. And maybe it is only that mother knows those cries. Biblical interpretation utilizes hermeneutics and science and history and one's opinion. And that's why people are all over the board on this topic. Because there are parts of the Bible that talk about sex that require interpretation. And even where it's obvious, you'll have complete wackos weighing in on the subject. I read, some, I read two books this past week were just absolutely bizarre. People's ideas of what things mean. There are some people, in fact most people, most human human beings believe that the Holocaust actually happened. That it was a real event in history and that millions of people were murdered and killed. Most sane, normal, regular folks believe that. But there are some people that believe that the Holocaust never happened. And so some people are going to approach the Bible with all kinds of strange interpretations of what it says. And so for the purposes of this series, I will be only using the parts of the Bible that require no interpretation. The obvious parts. The things that are plain, cut and dry, no hidden meaning, no alternative Interpretations. So let's start from the very beginning. It's in Genesis, the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1 and verse 27. It says this so simply God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. It's very obvious and very simple. God created humans. He created humans as male and female. There is not a third kind. Male and female. And He created Him them in His likeness. As a part of Him, there is a God, a divine God spark in every human being. And that's why Christianity, above every other religion, has the highest value for humanity and mankind. That all people are valuable because they carry the divine spark. But God created us with dignity, equality, value, and worth men and women are very different. But we complement one another. And when it comes to value, we are equal. <laughs> Remember the book that came out a long time ago now. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. In fact, comedians have developed an entire career on highlighting the differences between men and women. So you know I couldn't resist. So I have a few myself. A woman, a woman will dress up when she goes shopping, empties the garbage, enters the phone, waters the plants, gets the mail, and reads a book. Men dress up at weddings and funerals. Men wake up in the morning looking the same as they did when they went to bed. Women somehow deteriorate in the night. (laughs) A woman knows all about her children. She knows who their best friends are, their romances, their secret hopes and dreams, their favorite foods, their fears, and their dental appointments. A man is vaguely aware there are other people living in the house. A man will pay $10 for a $5 item that he needs. A woman will pay $5 for a $10 item she doesn't need because it's on sale. Every man has five things in his bathroom. A toothbrush, a razor, shaving cream, bar of soap, and a towel from Motel 6. The average woman has over 328 items in her bathroom, and the average man has no idea what most of them are. Women are naturally detailed about their relationships. Men are not. Ask a woman, did Susie have her baby? And she will reply, yes, she gave birth birth to a cute baby boy at 3 15 p.m. on wednesday afternoon he has cute brown eyes weighed seven pounds six ounces was 13 inches long the labor was natural and it lasted three hours ask a man did susie have a baby and he will reply yes But God created us to be human. During World War II, and the Nazis conquered different countries. They gathered up Jews from all of those countries. And as this unfolded, the world began to see what had been done in the Holocaust. Holocaust. People describe what they saw as inhuman. The Nazis had stripped away people's humanity and in doing so had lost their own. People everywhere described the Nazis as monsters, not human. And this is my point. God created us as Humans. And when we stray from God and engage in certain behaviors, we begin to chip away at our own humanity. A woman came to my church a number of years ago who was a prostitute for most of her life. She described to me in horrifying detail how she felt because she had slept with so many different men. And she said, and I quote, I am no longer human. When I asked her to clarify what she said, she said, I'm a monster. I'm an animal. A British soldier recounts his experience of liberating a concentration camp in Bergen-Belsen. He said that 500 Jews were dying every single day and there was nothing they could do about it. They had liberated the concentration camp but these people were on the verge of death and they couldn't stop it and so day after day 500 of them would just die and they ran out of medical supplies and then one day a huge shipment of supplies came and to their utter horror and shock it was thousands of little tubes of red lipstick And they needed a thousand different things, medical supplies, food, all these things. Who in their right mind would send all of this red lipstick? But soldier after soldier recounts as to what happened with that lipstick. One man saw a woman laying on a gurney she had passed on, and bright red lipstick on her lips, and a smile on her face. All over that camp, everywhere you looked, women had red lipsticks, bright, shining all over their face. And then it hit him. From the utter hell that they had been through, their humanity was stripped away. And that lipstick was the one thing that restored any sense of their humanity. What does it mean to be human? Well, it's simple. Not animal. (laughs) Man was created different than animals. He was created with the divine spark. This is why when crimes are committed against humanity, we refer to it as anti-God. One of my most embarrassing moments happened to me in college. And I went with a bunch of my friends, guy friends and girlfriends, and we went to the Tulsa Zoo. I'll never forget, we walked, walking along, looking at the animals, came to the polar bear enclosure, and they had two polar bears standing right in front of you. I mean, you know, it looked like 20 feet in front of you, having sex. You can imagine, a bunch of Christian kids. I mean, we kind of looked around, like, should we, you know... You know, is this okay? But I'm sure that female bear wasn't wondering, will he still love me in the morning? Will he respect me if I give him myself to him? It was just sex. It was just sex. It was anti-human. You see, sex between humans has never meant to be just sex. Because just sex is anti human. The farther away we get from our humanity, the farther away we get from God. The Apostle Paul writes about the dangers of this in Romans 1 and verse 28. And I quote, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. God did not create sex to just be a physical act. God created it for something more. Perhaps you've heard the stories or seen on TV about spring break. It's the time of year when college students go down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or Cancun to party and have a great time. Students come away from that week of events and they say things like, I can't believe it! We totally lost our minds. It was so out of control. The next morning, I couldn't even remember. Da-da-da-da. There's a video series about this event called Girls Gone Wild. People describe these kinds of events with words like party animal, she's a tiger, basic instinct. And it brings up the question, are we just the sum of our basic urges? Or is there more? The Bible says, yes, there's more. God created us to be human and in His image. And to be human is more than the urges of our flesh. In Romans 1, excuse me, in First Corinthians 1, in verse 6, it says this, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. You must honor God with your body. You see, the Bible challenges us to live for a higher purpose. That we're not just a collection of physical urges, but we are in fact a container for God. That we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That we have been set apart for holy purposes. And when we engage in perverted sex, we violate that holy temple. Well, if God is so concerned about this temple and keeping it holy, then why did he even invent sex? Why complicate the issue? Why put that into the mix? Why have those temptations? And the biblical answer is very clear on that and straightforward. God invented sex for marriage. Within the context of a Christian moral vocabulary, it is impossible to defend sex outside of marriage. And within that same framework, it is impossible to define marriage of anything other than a union between one man and one woman. Now to some people, that sounds like a bunch of old-fashioned hooey. But it's simple, it's difficult, and it's the truth. Jesus affirmed this very principle in Matthew 19. He quotes Genesis, what we just previously read, and he says that marriage was created between one man and one woman. Have you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. He said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. The Bible teaches that sinful sex includes homosexuality, erotica, bestiality, bisexuality, fornication, friends with benefits, adultery, swinging, prostitution, incest, rape, polygamy, sinful lust, pornography, and pedophilia. Ten of these 15 items are a complete no-brainer. In fact, our society refers to them as a crime, morally wrong, or at the very least, destructive behaviors. But five of these are somewhat accepted and becoming more and more accepted by our culture. In fact, Some view them as normal. So why does God say that they're wrong? Here's the plain truth. I have no idea. God does not explain himself. There are many cases throughout the scripture where God sets boundaries on human behavior and gives no explanation. For example, murder. God says murder is wrong. Humans are not to do it. But he doesn't explain why. Well, I think we've found obvious reasons why it's bad. But God doesn't explain every action that he takes. I wish he would. But he does not. Sometimes over time, cultures come to understand the reasoning behind certain things that God says. In fact, there's a just recently, a study was published with a significant amount of evidence to show that people who live together before they get married have a, a twice as higher chance of divorcing later than those who don't. So there are four simple statements that I'm making this morning about what the Bible says about sex. One, God created sex. That means sex Within the biblical parameters is good, is wonderful, is not dirty, is pleasurable, and is a blessing from God. Two, God created sex for marriage only. Sex out of, out of sight of marriage is a sin. God created marriage between one man and one woman. From the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, it is completely consistent. There is no other description of marriage that the Bible gives. And four, lust and pornography are sinful forms of sexual expression. I've also gone a little bit further and I've included mystery point number five. I don't have time to go into it this morning, so I recorded it past last week. It's on our website. So if you want to click onto our website and listen to that podcast, you can. It's the fifth point of today's message. But in essence, this is what I'm laying out for you. This is a biblical roadmap. It's a biblical pathway designed by God himself. Now, the consequences of living a life apart from God are dire. To continually damage one's humanity will drive you further and further away from God. And a lifetime of that living will put one in danger of being turned over to your own set of morality completely separate from God. When this has happened, people say things like, the Bible does not need to be followed. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible is not true. These are ancient things that applied to people back then, but not for today. Finding your way back to the biblical framework for sex is difficult, it is painful but it is not impossible. Our hope is in a loving God who has the power to restore our broken humanity and to make us whole again. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, we find this hope. Do you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that the kindness, his kindness, is intended to turn you from your sin? And when my children were young, they used to get angry and despise me for disciplining them. But as a, as, a, as a parent, you understand that to discipline your children is to love them, to protect them, to create a boundary of safety for your children and god provides boundaries on sex to preserve our humanity to use our bodies as they were created to be used to give us the peace and hope that our bodies and our souls can be whole I believe God's purpose is to help us to feel normal again. to feel whole. The woman I told you about at the beginning of this talk was a prostitute. She felt like she had lost her humanity. But she turned to Jesus. And in Jesus she found a love that she had never known. A forgiveness and a healing. Later, she told me that after accepting Jesus Christ, she was the happiest she had ever been her entire life, and her face surely proved it. She was a different person. Her whole countenance has changed. Now, I believe that this morning that I'm talking to some of you, and at the same time, God is talking to you. God is dealing with you, and you see that pathway that is laid out by the Scriptures, and you find yourself off of the path. God is dealing with you this morning, pinpointing things in your life, and you feel that. Don't deny that. That is the Holy Spirit at work, not to condemn. Not to condemn, but to bring hope and healing, to gently guide you back onto the path. This is the first talk on this series, but it's not the end of the discussion. I hope you don't walk away today and consider it the end of the discussion. That little brochure that Amanda referred to—that little brochure—go ahead and grab it. Won't you refer to that just quickly? Inside of it, you see different resources that we're providing for you. We're pointing to you to resources because this is it. No one should go about this alone. And yet, that's the thing about sex—is it's so intimate and so private. That we feel we must deal with this alone. That is a lie. There are people who are loving, honest, godly people who have sinned themselves, who are not looking to you to, as a beat down, but looking at themselves as well, willing to walk with you and help you. The very last page on that resources is email response. We've set up two emails for you. And these are completely confidential. And these emails go to people we have previously selected and screened and know and trust. It will be 100% confidential. None of the staff will ever know that you sent in the email. I will never see it. None of the pastors will ever see it. It goes confidential to those people to help you and guide you and provide resources for you. on the back of your connection card we have something new this week I want to point your attention to it shortly we'll be receiving an offering and on the back you can respond to what you've heard today but here's the part that's different you may have noticed it already this tears off it tears off and this part goes in the offering the large piece the small one you keep you take it with you Put it in your wallet. Put it in your Bible. I don't know where you'll put it. But on the back side, you put down your response, and you keep this with you all week. We'll give you a different one each week. And the reason we changed this this week is we wanted you to be able to think about this throughout this week. Don't let this moment just fade away, but think about it. Let it touch your soul. Like to lead us in prayer before the ushers come forward. Bow your heads and pray with me a moment. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and your grace, Lord, that you have shown towards me and your patience with me. Jesus, we We run to you this morning for hope, for new life. Lord, some today need a fresh new start. Some marriages are hurting. There's division. God, I pray that there would be a great sense of hope today and healing. People reach out to you with thine help. I pray, Lord, that this moment would not be lost as people leave this room, but it would stick with them until change happens. In Jesus' name, amen.